joy, peace, tranquility, vibrancy, and wellness. Isn't this what you want instead of constant stress? That's what host Rochelle Lawson is going to help you with on Blissful Living. There are many ways to reduce stress, some you may not even know about. Doesn't a little peace and tranquility sound like just what you've been looking for? Relax for a few minutes with Rochelle. She's the queen of feeling fabulous. and welcome to Blissful Living. I am Rochelle Lawson, the Queen of Feeling Fabulous, and I have an exceptional guest. And the reason why I'm saying he's exceptional is because he was a guest on the show earlier this year, and he was so fabulous that I wanted to bring him back. And I want to tell you a little bit about this incredible dude. Um, His name is... Dr. Alex Lickerman, and he is a physician, former assistant professor of medicine and director of primary care at the University of Chicago, and current assistant vice president for student health and counseling services at the University of Chicago. He is a practicing, here we go again, Nishiren Buddhist and a leader in that community. And he's a prolific writer, having contributed to medical textbooks, national trade publications, and even for Hollywood with an adaptation of Milton's Paradise Lost. He has spoken to high schools, colleges, and medical conferences, and was recently selected by Consumers Research Council of America as one of America's top physicians in their publication, Guide to America's Top Physicians. He's also an author, and he has He's written a book called The Undefeated Mind. And so without me just running my mouth and, and uh, you know, taking up his time, I also want to let you know Dr. Lickerman's blog, Happiness in This World, is, a syndicated, is syndicated via the Psychology Today website, and he receives over 100,000 unique visitors per month. So he is a very busy man, very important. And so I just want to say welcome back. Dr. Alex Lickerman, how are you? I am great. Thank you for having me. And I'm just going to jump right into things. You know, last time you were on the show, we talked about the roadmap that will lead to resilience and indestructible happiness. And can you just tell us a little bit um, about what that exactly means to the normal, everyday person here in America? So the Buddhas in my practice argues that there are actually two types of happiness and that it is the second type That is the purpose for which people practice Buddhism. And the first type is called relative happiness. And it's called relative happiness because it's the kind of happiness that depends on things that are outside of ourselves and therefore are determined by the value we assign them. And so things like uh, getting a good job or having enough money or even having uh, a relationship that matters to us. These are the things to which we are attached that when we get them, we actually become happy. And it's not that actually... um, uh, the Buddhists will argue that relative happiness is is a bad kind of happiness or something that should be avoided. The problem with it is that it's temporary. And not only that it's temporary, but also that the very things that bring us uh, relative happiness when we first get them uh, often can become the sources of our greatest suffering if and when we lose them. And even if we don't lose them, just having them for a while, we tend to habituate to all the things that we have, even you know our cars, um, our houses, even our spouses, and, and that over time we begin to take them for granted and they don't delight us the way they first did when we first got them. So uh, Buddhism argues that the, the key, the, the not, not that that type of happiness is unimportant, that we should not seek to enjoy those attachments, uh, but the problem is that uh, they are all temporary and therefore cannot serve as a source of lasting uh, or even indestructible happiness. 
indestructible or absolute happiness, Buddhism will argue, is the type of happiness that comes basically from inside ourselves. And it is not built, therefore, on anything outside of ourselves, but really based on uh, our understanding uh, of ourselves, uh, our true identities, as well as resilience, the ability to be strong enough to handle whatever life throws at us. Ultimately, Buddhism equates happiness and strength. And so it's not just being able to survive or even thrive when adversity strikes, but also the strength to pursue our goals and resist becoming discouraged when obstacles arise in the course of that goal pursuit, as invariably obstacles arise, so that we can actually accomplish our dreams. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, you mentioned, um, you know, this this particular uh, form or tenet of Buddhism, and I mentioned it as we opened up the show. Can you just tell the listeners exactly, um, I probably did, you know, really jack up the pronunciation, but could you just tell our listeners a little bit about about that sure. type of Buddhism? It's called Nichiren Buddhism, named after the founder, Nichiren Daishonin, who was a Japanese priest who lived around 750 years ago. And the practice of this type of Buddhism is chanting a particular phrase, which is Namyo Horenge Kyo, And I have to be honest and say that I would describe myself as a secular Buddhist. And by that, I mean the reason the Buddhists argue chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo has power is because Nam-myoho-renge-kyo is in some way the name or the sound of the ultimate law of life, of the universe itself. I really don't subscribe to that point of view because I've not really seen any evidence that such a law exists. But I have seen lots of evidence that chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo can have life-changing effects and actually cause wisdom to blossom in a person's life when you are facing problems, wisdom that enables you to solve those problems in a way that most likely you haven't thought of or even considered. And that's certainly been its effect on my life. It has brought great wisdom into my life in very pragmatic and practical ways, uh, along with a philosophy that uh, really is about how one uh, overcomes obstacles in life now and how one really uh, becomes happy. How, how do you in, induce or inculcate wisdom in your life? That's really what chanting and studying the philosophy of this type of Buddhism is about. I um, That chant that you mentioned, and I don't want to you know, say it because I don't want to say it incorrectly, but I just remember watching how, uh, Tina Turner's, a story about what love got to do with it and how when she converted over, she, you know, the process of, you know, being in this abusive relationship and she was at her lowest point in life and, you know, she found this uh, type of Buddhism and began that chant and how she became empowered and strengthened and, and you know, uh, was able to dig deep inside of her and get that resilience and, and all that she needed to move herself out of that challenging situation into a better life. And she absolutely looks fabulous today. And so I just wanted people to know exactly, you know, what you're what I said and what we're talking about when we mentioned that form of Buddhism because, you know, people just think that's just Buddhism and that's just it, like Catholicism or, or you know, some of these other um religious things and um and there's actually different sects within all of that. But but so thank you for sharing that that wisdom and enlightening us um, about that because it's it's really beautiful. It, it has a beautiful principle behind that that's meant to help us all be the best that we can be, um, you know, while we're here. So I want to move into, you know, you have um, something that you talk about, um, and I believe you talk about this maybe in the undefeated mind with regards to um, exactly what resilience is. Now, 
people out there listening, I want you to really take note of what he's saying here um, because the question I'm about to ask him is, is resilience something that we're born with? Is it something that we develop? Or if you don't think you have it, is it something that you can learn? I think the answer is both. Uh, clearly, like any characteristic or personality characteristic we have, uh, there are genetic influences and in that some people uh, seem to be born with more resilience. Uh, I'm sure we all know people like that, uh, you know, people who no matter what happens to them, they just seem to handle it with a smile and move on. And then other people who no matter what happens to them, uh, you know, uh, the smallest obstacle will knock them completely off of their horse and they'll have a hard time getting back on. And then everyone in between. And it's not such a straightforward calculation as if uh, to say that, you know, you, you have certain genes and if you have all of those genes, you're going to be resilient. And if you don't have those genes, you're not going to be resilient. It seems as if we uh, are, are, are sort of born with a range of resilience that we're capable of demonstrating uh, and depending upon some early life experiences, um, that that range, we can be living mostly in the low end of that range or the high end of that range. Then again, there are people who are born into horrible circumstances that um, others around them in the same circumstances never seem to overcome. But for some reason, they rise out of the squalor and really make something of themselves because they have resilience that um, they're just able, you know, they're born with it. Wherever you are on this spectrum of resilience, Moment by moment, there absolutely are uh, things you can do to make yourself more so. So, uh, you know, people who um, may feel very fragile and uh, not strong and able to handle anything can learn to become strong and handle things. And a lot of times it is the experience of going through things where you are forced to become resilient that teaches you you can be resilient. And that itself makes you more resilient. To some degree, how resilient we are is how, a function of how resilient we believe ourselves to be. But then there are, again, as I write about in the book, uh, many very specific techniques that, if you take advantage of them, uh, really will enable you to um, extend the, the, uh, the range of your resilience and, and be operating on the higher end of whatever range you were born to be able to experience. Hmm, I like that, you know. Uh, there's so many people, and you're right, there's people that are, like, resilient, and, and you see them, and they go through challenges, and they, you know, they just keep moving forward, and, you know, another one comes, and they just keep mo moving forward down, as I like to say, their path to bliss. And then there are others that just get so bogged down with all the stuff that they are not as resilient or have no resiliency at all, and they get stuck and stagnant, and sometimes their challenges become so overwhelming um, that that they tend to go backwards or falter. What are some key, what is a key step that someone could take to move them forward on this resilience, to, to move them forward on developing um, more resilience, whether they're, you know, that person that's stuck or whether they're that person that, you know, moves forward. What is something that, you know, someone can do to just help them be just a little bit more resilient um, in their times of quote-unquote challenges? So the first thing I talk about in the book is defining a personal mission for yourself. There are a lot of studies that show that people who are clear about why they are doing what they are doing are far more resilient than people who are not clear. And this is sort of in almost any context. So, for example, if you're challenging a mountain, if you're literally climbing a mountain, as my wife found herself doing last summer, climbing Mount Rainier, uh, which is one of the most technically difficult climbs in North America. Uh, she thought she was doing this because she liked to challenge herself, and she liked to sort of 
figure out what are her physical limits and try to move past, move past those limits. And there came a point while she was climbing this mountain where she was sure she was going to quit and give up, that it was just too painful, physically painful, too difficult. Uh, and yet every time that thought arose and she was about to stop and talk to the guide and say, I just can't do it, I'm going to have to turn around, as 50% of the people who actually went up with her eventually did, a single thought stopped her. And that thought was her brother was with her. And she did not want to disappoint her brother because if she turned around, he would have to turn around. And that was the reason why that she turned to in the moments where she most wanted to quit that kept her going. But only because she was clear about that reason was she able to call on it and resist discouragement and uh, the, the pain of the actual climb enough that she was actually able to make it to the summit. And so what I talk about in the book is the idea that, you know, a reason why for an individual activity like mountain climbing is great, but really what we want to do is articulate our most fundamental reason why we are here alive on this planet. And in my mind, that isn't something that is handed to us by an external being like God or fate or, or whatever you may subscribe to, but really something that is self-determined. And I define it as what is the type of value we are able to create that feels the most important to us. When you sort of are able to articulate that in a sentence, you know, I am here to relieve suffering is how I articulate my personal mission. Once I, once I recognized that that statement is what felt to me to be the most important thing I could do with my life, um, then that becomes a statement I can turn to when I get discouraged in whatever I'm doing, because whatever I am doing in some way ultimately is going to relate to that mission statement. That's why I'm doing it. I try not to do things that don't in some sense relate to that mission statement that, that of course, are you know, long-term projects require lots of, lots of work. That's why I'm a physician. That's why I like to write. Uh, and so when I get discouraged in those realms and want to quit doing whatever I'm doing, um, I remind myself the reason I'm doing it because it feels really important to me to help to, re help to relieve the suffering of other people. Nothing feels more important to me than that. And there have been many times when I've been faced, you know, with projects or with uh, patients where I really kind of in some way or another wanted to give up. And what has stopped me from giving up is I get to the point where I remind myself like my wife did with, with her brother on the mountain. If I give up, that means I'm not, I'm giving up on this person's suffering. And that has what enabled me to break through my own discouragement and keep going. And so when people can articulate to themselves whatever mission, whatever um, contribution they want to make in the world that feels, at least for them, like the most important contribution they could make and, and hold fast to that in their hearts and, and choose to do things that uh, are, are to fulfill that mission, then they can fall back on that mission when they get discouraged. And invariably people will when you're, when you're really taking on something that is important. I like that because, you know, there's many times, um, you know, people are, you know, doing whatever, you know, and want to quit. And some will quit and some won't. And for me, myself, um, I relate back to when I first started running the 400 meters when I was 10 years old. Mm. You know, that's a grueling, grueling race. And there were times in the middle of the race that I may have been like the last person, you know, coming in, you know, in, on the track, so to speak. And I would just want to quit because, for one, I didn't want to be – you know, come across the finish line as last. And for two, it's such a grueling race, I just wanted to quit because it's so hard. 
but there was just this little spark in me that says you can't quit. You can't quit. You know, you can't quit. There may be somebody out there that's watching you that you might inspire. So lo and behold, at that moment, and I and I can almost pinpoint it, it was probably like at the 300-meter mark where I would just like just get this gust and just go because to me, if I quit, I was not only letting myself down, but I was letting, you know, my my parents down or my coach down or, you know, whatever the case would be. And then I would get this spark and I would just jam and, I you know, I wouldn't come in last, that's for sure. Um, but it was just me digging deep inside myself. And I found myself over the years doing that quite a bit when it came to things. And I must have bestowed that upon my children because my son – Played basketball. He played basketball in college, you know, all through high school. You know, he's been playing for a long time, but all through high school, got a college scholarship to St. John's, played basketball. And in his freshman year, he wanted to quit because he was promised the world, and then got there and got to, you know, actually see reality. And uh, and I and I said, you can't quit because if you quit, you never know what may happen, right? You never know, and you'll always be wondering. And so he stuck with it, and 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 to this day, he's graduated and all that. And he and he really thanks me for instilling that in him because he's like, you can never give up because if you give up, it's like you're giving up on yourself. And so it, it built this resilience in him and in my daughter as well. And so I, I like that story that you share um, because I think it, there's a lot of people out there that think, oh, I'll just give up. You know, I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm doing this particular type of work. But it's something in me that tells me that I need to do this. I need to feed my soul. Like you being a physician, me being a nurse, it's something in me that I need to do this because it's not really for me per se, but it's for all those that I'm meant to help and serve. And, um, you know, if I quit, I'll never know what could have been possible for me just stroking that child that, you know, just lost his parents in a car accident or just stroking that, that parent that's lost their child in a car accident or whatever the case may be. You never know whose life you may touch by just keep on, you know, moving forward and not quitting. So thank you for sharing that. And I like also how you mentioned about finding your mission. I know a lot of people out there is like, what is that? Um, but it is something that is is uh, is very profound. And once you discover that and, deep, you know, go deep inside and discover it, it kind of sets you on, quote, unquote, your path to bliss. And, and you just walk your journey and, and, and do what you need to do to fulfill your mission. It's a beautiful way to live. Now, I know in your book you talk about the meaning of victory. What exactly do you mean by that? So when people think about victory, usually they think about victory over someone else uh, or, or that you know, in order for us to win, someone else has to lose. But that's not at all what uh, the Buddhist concept of victory is about. It really is about overcoming obstacles and becoming happy. And so it dep- what it means depends uh, entirely on the context. Uh, sometimes it means actually accomplishing your goal. Sometimes it means uh, getting to a point where you understand that your goal was not something uh, you really actually wanted to accomplish. And then sometimes it's, it's actually uh, victory is victory over yourself, over your own weakness, uh, over your own delusion. It's victory represents, uh, or victory ends up being the acquisition of wisdom that ends up making you happier. Uh, but ultimately, for me, all those things tie into uh, victory really is an attitude of, of refusing to be defeated. So that even if you don't accomplish your goal, if you continue to fight for it uh, without ever giving up, your experience while you're fighting for that goal is one where you feel hopeful and you feel empowered and joyful. And if you think about it, we spend far more time striving towards goals than we actually do achieving them. 
And so even if in the end you don't achieve your goal, if while you were striving for it, you were optimistic and happy and hopeful and courageous and all those good things, that itself is victory. Victory, is, in other words, means never giving up. Love it. And it goes perfect with, you know, what we're talking about with regards to being resilient. Now, with, um, you know, these adversities or what I like to call them challenges that come across, that we come across as we are walking down our path to bliss, does it make sense as you begin your journey and whatever journey that may be, does it make sense to expect obstacles or should you just go blindly and, you know, be surprised by the obstacle that may come up? Well, I feel like you just pitched me a softball there. So, yeah, um, obviously um, uh, to to <laughs> home run. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, you know, the idea that you're, you're getting at a principle I talk about in my book about the power of, of uh, consciously setting your expectations, not for what's going to happen for, for, for a good outcome or a bad outcome, but for how difficult it will be to accomplish a goal. That actually has a dramatic impact on our ability to persevere through obstacles. So studies have been done, for example, showing that if you uh, start uh, on your way towards a goal and the first task you expect it to be easy, and it ends up being hard enough that you fail at it, your performance on subsequent tasks and therefore your ability to persist uh, toward your goal is impaired compared to the circumstance in which you expect that first task to be really hard and you fail at it. Subsequent performance and subsequent perseverance is not affected. So the idea is when we think things are going to be easy and we find out we're wrong and they're hard, we are far more discouraged than when we expect them to be hard and we find out that they're hard. And, and very few of us, when we're doing something new for the first time or where we have a goal that's a stretch goal, are we able to succeed at every step along the way without ever failing once. And so preparing ourselves to withstand disappointment and failure is a key component to achieving a goal that we've never achieved before. And one of the strongest, most effective levers to prepare yourself for that is by consciously setting your expectations. And people don't tend to do this. People tend to quickly and unconsciously assume a task or a goal will be uh, of a certain level of difficulty, and they never really go back to examine their assumptions about that. And yet it's their assumptions that actually often trap them and, and actually cause them to give up far sooner than they need to uh, when you know, they could have actually gone on to succeed. So I'll give you an example. You know, My father, this is the example I write about in the book, my father once came home and announced that he wanted to learn to play the saxophone. And he had a habit of trying all these interesting things, and so we would roll our eyes a little bit because he typically would give up on them pretty quickly. And we, he brought home the saxophone, and we expected horrible sounds to be coming from you know, his bedroom every morning, and yet you know, the first morning we heard nothing. And the second morning we heard nothing. And then on the third morning he came out and basically said, I quit, I'm giving up. And the reason he gave was, he said, you know, I, I expected I wouldn't be able to make this thing sound well or sound good right away, but I didn't think I wouldn't be able to make a sound at all. He literally was blowing into this thing and unable to make a sound. And at the time, of course, I didn't know about the research on setting expectations and didn't really sort of have any wisdom to impart to him at that time. But as I thought back on that years later, I realized had he only gone to, uh, a, you know, a master saxophone player or even to his teacher and said, so how soon should I expect to be able to make a sound or how, what, how will this go for me? What, what are your students, you know, what experience do they mostly have? And the instructor had said, well, you know, you'll be lucky if you make a sound at all the first week. Then his expectations would have been set in such a way that when he couldn't make a sound, he wouldn't have been as discouraged and would not likely have been as likely to quit 
and might have continued on and off until he actually started making a sound. And then if his teacher said that would have been a horrible sound, that's normal as well. It takes months before you can make it sound good. Well, if you set your expectation at that level, you're far less likely to quit. And people don't realize we are in control of those expectations. The only reason we seem not to be is because we don't bother to set them consciously at the beginning of a, uh, a task or a, a goal we're taking on. So I encourage people, when you're taking on a goal, and even if you've done it before, consciously pause and set your expectations so that you're, you're, what you expect the difficulty of the task to be is just beyond what it's likely to be, so that when it's, it is hard, you're not discouraged and you don't quit. Beautifully said. I love that example um, that you use with your dad about your dad because that that you know we all know people that have gone through that. You, your dad, um, me, other people, and and, and it kind of sets the tone for you know what we're talking about here today. Just you know, don't give up. Don't. And I like the having the expectation of you know going into something and expecting it to be difficult. Um, because people do sometimes go into things and expect it to be easy, and then when it becomes difficult, they immediately want to give up. But I think if you have, if you twist it the other way around, um, you're you're just that much more able to dig down into that inner strength and keep moving forward. Um, it's a beautiful, 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 beautiful thing um, to have with you and to have inside you to help. Um, you do what you're supposed to do and what you're meant to do. Now, you also talk about something in the book called Make a Vow. What exactly do you mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, a determination. Uh, the power of determination is something that isn't much talked about, uh, but is absolutely crucial uh, to accomplish a goal, which is that it's not so much our willpower, which, which is something that fatigues with use, but our determination is really a promise we make to ourselves that we're going to accomplish the goal we have set for ourselves. In, in Buddhism, when we talk about prayer, we're not talking about prayer to a deity or any force outside of ourselves, but rather a vow we make to ourselves that we are going to accomplish a task. And I, I liken this to a sprinter sort of lining up on the blocks, getting ready for a race. It's sort of a state of preparation just prior to the, to the gun being fired in the, the race beginning where every, every cell in your body is prepared and determined to sort of run your best race. It's that, that summoning of the energy and the determination, the attitude you need to run whatever race you are running um, that really is the thing that determines whether you're going to be successful or not. And our initial, we, we usually, when we start a task, we, we take on a goal, we usually have a, a great initial determination. But as we start to encounter obstacles and as time goes by and our goal is not accomplished, that determination uh, starts to fade. And the key to accomplishing our task or our goal is to not allow it to, to refresh our determination constantly. So I talk in the book about different ways of doing that and how important it is to return to your original determination when you get discouraged and, 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 and seek for greater determination that no matter how discouraged you get, no matter how many obstacles rise up in front of you, that threaten to discourage you or make you believe you can't do what you've set out to do. You can always call on a greater determination. Even if your determination is simply not to give up, you can make that determination and follow through on that determination without, um, you know, no matter what may be assailing you. It is, it is your answer to obstacles. It is the answer to when everything in the world seems to be against you and everyone seems to be against you. If you clench your fist or clench your determination like a fist and simply go on, that is the type of determination that, that brings the power to accomplish seemingly impossible things. Mm, I like that. Um, 
yeah, I have nothing else to add, I, I, and that's beautiful. Now, you know, in my discipline of Ayurveda and, of course, in Buddhism, you know, they talk about the law of karma. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned something about that in your book. Can you just share with the listeners um, what is meant by the meant by karma and uh, you have it, like, I think in your section, um, spot where it's, you know, it's standalone. But what is the meaning of karma and how does that affect, um, affect us? So the Buddhist notion of karma is not something that is scientifically verifiable. And the idea is that everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do is in some way engraved on our lives. And at some point in the future, we'll, there's sort of a cause that's engraved in our lives. That will, at some point in the future, have an effect And in Buddhism, this is even thought to be carried over from life to life, because as you probably know, Buddhists uh, believe in reincarnation. Now, I don't think about karma that way. I I haven't seen evidence that convinces me that that's true. But what I I take from the concept of karma that I think is extremely true is that uh, ultimately we have responsibility to solve the problems that we have, and we have responsibility for resolving our own suffering. The idea being that if we are suffering in some way or another, that is our responsibility to solve, whether we were the uh, actual cause of the circumstances that bring us suffering or not, if we're experiencing suffering, that suffering is our problem to solve. It's ultimately for me, that's what the law of cause and effect and the, 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 um, the concept of karma really is about. And how does that help us with our you know, um, moral transformations and dilemmas? So there's this concept of moral transformation advanced by... Um, psychological research that suggests when we uh, are confronted with a moral dilemma and we choose to act in a way that is moral or good, it actually makes us stronger, not just you know, internally stronger, but it turns out physically stronger, uh, which is sort of a fascinating idea. And the theory behind this is that when we find ourselves acting morally, we are fulfilling an expectation we have of people who act morally. That is, people who act morally, we believe, are stronger. And when we ourselves act morally, that prejudice extends to ourselves. And so it seems as if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that the more moral you act, the stronger you feel because you believe moral acting people are strong. And so uh, and I've experienced this in my own life, and I think probably many of your listeners have as well, which is that when you are confronted with the moral dilemma and you choose the right thing, what you think is the right thing, that's often a very difficult choice to make. There are often other forces pushing you to not make that choice. And yet when you find yourself actually doing it, um, it doesn't just make you feel good. It does make you feel stronger. It it, it's, it's makes you feel more capable of handling the consequences of those decisions, even if people may criticize you or you may uh, suffer at the hands of that decision uh, personally, uh, but you still feel it was a right decision to make. That tends to sort of um, enhance our inner uh, resolve and our resilience. With regards to that, you know, people have these, uh, again, challenges, I like to call them, whether they're suffering from chronic pain or addiction or, you know, some type of illness or some type of loss. How can they take some of this stuff that you've just, you know, that you've been discussing with us and incorporate incorporate it into their lives so that um, they, quote, unquote, do not get a defeated mind but instead have an undefeated mind? Yeah, uh, it's a difficult question to answer because it's so complex. It depends on what the specific circumstances are. And it's really sort of the reason I wrote the book, because I think when you really look at resilience, it breaks down into many different, um, many different angles, many different topics. So, you know, when people are, um, 
uh, are assailed by adversity, one of the things that they do is they tell themselves a story about why this adversity has happened to them. And the style that they use and the types of stories they tend to tell themselves really has an impact on how uh, capable they feel of withstanding the adversity. So, for example, people who have what's called a pessimistic self-explanatory style, meaning that they tend to explain the causes of events in a pessimistic way Mm -hmm. so that if you were, Mm -hmm. say, failed to test, you might explain to yourself the reason you failed to test is because you're not good at test taking, which is is a way of explaining a failing a test that removes all your power to do anything about it. On the other hand, if you are have an optimistic self-explanatory style and you fail a test, you're more likely to tell yourself the reason you failed the test is because you just didn't study hard enough. And as you can see, depending on which story you believe will dramatically impact how you respond to that failure. And so if you tell yourself, I, I failed that test because I just can't take tests very well, you're not likely to study hard enough so when you retake it, you pass it. But if you say, yeah, I just didn't study hard enough, it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with me, you're much more likely to study hard enough so the next time around you actually pass it. I like that analogy. I, I actually um, have that happen to me. I've been a great test taker all my life and, you know, a good student and all that good stuff and kind of was getting ready to study, take a broker's exam for real estate and, uh, you know, just kind of didn't really put the effort forth so to speak, with regards to studying because I had already had a real estate license. And so here I go to open the mailbox and discovered I failed the test, which was like, oh, my God, my first failure was devastating. And I failed the test by 2%, which was probably two or three questions. So, you know, I could have took the attitude like, oh, my God, I just don't take tests well, which was not really true. Or, you know, I just didn't study enough, which was really the truth, and so um, the next time I went to take the test, you you best believe that I, I put all that behind me and really focused on studying, and of course I passed, but it's uh, it's amazing how we can grasp at things and kind of twist them and turn them based on if we're optimistic or pessimistic, and then, you know, uh, uh, you know it kind of just gets caught in the inner trappings of, you know, what's going on inside our mind and our egos and things of that nature, um, so I, I'd like you to, I'd like you Thank, like to thank you for sharing that story because that that was really um, you know it's really cool that information you just shared with us. Now you know as a physician and me as a nurse, we come across people that um, are suffering from all kinds of things. But one of the hardest things that for me to see is someone suffering from suffering and pain. Um, utilizing the concepts that you've written about in the undefeated mind, what would you say to someone um, with regards to saying? Ex- accepting their pain and utilizing the information that you've written about in the book to help them. This is one of my most favorite, I think most powerful techniques uh, for managing, um, uh, for increasing one's resilience. You know, we evolved to avoid pain. Pain is obviously a warning signal that there is danger nearby that can threaten our limbs or our lives. And, and so we need to pay attention to pain because uh, it's a great, important signal for us to survive. The problem is that as we evolved a more advanced uh, cerebral cortex and we sort of became self-aware creatures, that psychologically we continue to try to avoid all types of pain. And in the act of avoiding certain kinds of pain, we actually end up causing ourselves more suffering. So, for example, you know, people who may suffer from, say, social anxiety, where it's hard or painful for them, because they have a lot of anxiety uh, interacting with people in social groups, will often drink or use drugs to try to numb that anxiety 
and ultimately sort of uh, cause far more suffering and, and destruction in their lives than the experience of anxiety itself. Or, or the other example I, I talk about in the book is people who are so afraid that someone else is going to leave them that in relationships they have this pattern where they keep breaking up with people before someone else can break up with them. And so they never achieve their goal of actually having a relationship because they're always afraid of, of being rejected. And so to avoid that, that painful feeling, they sabotage themselves. This actually even holds true for people who have physical pain. Studies have suggested that when you have physical pain, that approaching it with an attitude of acceptance can actually diminish its ability to make you suffer. It doesn't diminish how intense the pain feels necessarily, but it diminishes the impact of that pain on your life. So I had a, you know, the story I tell is about a patient of mine who had chronic headaches from a horrific medical problem and how it just sort of stopped his life in his tracks. He stopped working, he stopped working out. It was uh, making him depressed. His relationship with his wife was suffering. And I ended up sending him to a pain therapist uh, who basically brought this idea to him that you can approach your pain not with an attitude of uh, rejection and I have to somehow relieve myself of the pain, but an attitude of acceptance that you're just going to be in pain. Medical science is treated as far as it can and you still have some, so you can't let it stop you. And so you can, it's not going to harm you. It just feels bad. So he actually really grabbed that concept and ran with it and ultimately was able to go back to work. He was still in pain, but he didn't allow it to stop him from achieving his goal, which was to be working. Fabulous. I, um, yeah, I, I come across a lot of people suffering from pain. And, you know, the first thing, especially when I was in, um, you know, working in the clinics and things, hospital, you know, and right away, you know, physicians, they, they want to, they don't like to see people suffer, so they want to relieve this suffering. And they want to, you know, the first thing they want to do is offer them some pain medication. And I used to tell the patient, and they would be like, do you think I should take this? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I, you should do whatever your physician physician tells you to do, but if you don't need to take it, and if you think you can work through it, you know, then just work through it. Listen to what your body's trying to tell you, because it's really trying to communicate with you, and sometimes if you take the pain medications and things of that nature, it's going to mask what the body is really trying to tell you, and sometimes just listening to your body is, you know, the solution is in there. Um, And so I, I like how you have that part in your book, and that seems to be a really powerful and profound part of your book that can help so many people. So if you guys are out there listening, again, you're going to want to go pick up Dr. Lickerman's book called The Undefeated Mind. It, it, it is fabulous, and it talks, you know, about a lot of what we're talking um, about here today, but it goes into much deeper, much, much deeper um, insight and information, wisdom for for all of you to benefit from. And hold on, Dr. Lickerman, this is the part of the show that I like to thank one of my sponsors, and that sponsor happens to be 21 Drops. 21 Drops is an essential oil company, and what they do is they believe that essential oils are the root of it all, meaning all healing, and and that they benefit the mind, body, and spirit. They believe that when they extract the highly concentrated molecules from these various parts of the plants, whether it's the leaves, the fruit, the wood, the seeds, or the flowers, that they're actually extracting a part of that plant's critical immune and survival mechanisms from, um, from that particular plant. Because plants and man have evolved alongside each other for many years, and we kind of have some of the same chemistry, once humans either inhale or absorb these uh, beautiful essential oils into the bloodstream, they actually interact with our body to help create balance and wellness. And that is what the science of aromatherapy is, is based upon. Now, at 21 Drops, they source their essential oils from organically grown herbs or plants collected sustainably from all over the globe. 
their uh, plants that are utilized in their essential oils are 100% organic or wild crafted and are sourced from artisans to zealers. So they're very particular about who they get their plants from to extract this essential oil from. And they believe that when they get the best of the best of the best that they could possibly get, what results is essential oils that are in their purest, most effective form. And what they do is take select essential oils and carefully fuse them together to create effective, customized solutions to answer anything from headache to heartache. So their model, or what they truly believe, is that while they're doing this, of course, for the benefit of you know sustainability for their company and these beautiful essential oils, but that's just one aspect. The main nuts and bolts behind their philosophy is that by sharing these beautiful essential oils with everyone, they're helping to empower us to feel better and be better. So if you're in the market for some essential oils or you're curious about essential oils or you just, you know, want to have some yummy natural smells that are not like heavy perfumes and don't contain a lot of artificial things in them, then I highly suggest that you go check out 21 Drops. And you can access them at their website, 21drops.com. That's the number 21, the word drops with an S, dot com. Check them out. You, I guarantee you will be quite surprised at the beautiful essential oils that they have available to all of us. And now back to Dr. Lickerman, um, because we're coming down close to closing the show. He's a very busy man, as you guys know, and I, I just feel so honored and so privileged to have him, not once but twice on this show. I just want to go into, you mentioned something uh, before we took the, the little sponsor segment with regards to people who, you know, uh, don't want to experience loss in a relationship, so to speak, so they'll break up with people prior to, having that person break up with them and they never able to stay within that relationship. In that book or in your book, you mentioned a section, or I know there's a section with regards to talking about uh, the let go factor is what I want to say. Can you just um, explore that or, or share a little bit of your wisdom regarding that with our, our listeners today? Well, I think uh, people grieve and suffer over the loss of attachments, whether it's a thing or a person. Um, because of their inability to let go in their hearts of the thing that they lose. So, um, you know, people grieve when a loved one dies. Uh, but the truth is, in studies, most of the time, most people eventually recover from those losses. And yet what seems to be required for that recovery is for someone within their own heart to finally let go of uh, the attachment in their heart and, and, in a sense, almost bid goodbye to their attachment or their loved one. Um, in a way that they don't forget them, but they, they recognize it's time for them to move on in their lives. And the process of letting go in your heart of something that you were you know, desperately attached to, uh, is, uh, it's sort of the same. It go, you go through the same steps, whether you're talking about um, a job you lose, uh, maybe a limb you lose, or, or a sense like your sight, or a person. And it, it's, it's definitely a series of steps, and it's definitely a predictable emotional journey that people go on. And there really are things people can do as they find themselves on that journey uh, to make the journey a little less bumpy and to speed it along so they can get to a place where when they think about the thing that the person they have lost, they're not thinking about it or overwhelmed with suffering. Beautiful. And um, before we go, and before I, I let everyone know how they can get more of you and, and definitely pick up your book, I wanted, wondered if you could touch on... Um, two things. 
the first one is appreciating the good. Can you just tell us how that can help us not only develop more resilience, but just have a much better life, so to speak? Well, I don't think there are too many people who think that it's uh, it's possible to have too much gratitude for things in your life. Gratitude is a very uh, uh, joyful emotion, and it turns out actually can make people quite resilient that when you are in the state feeling gratitude or in a state of gratitude. Um, it makes you extremely strong. The problem with gratitude is getting yourself to feel it because, as we talked about earlier, all the things that we have for which we should be feeling grateful, we tend to habituate to and we get used to. It's just a psychological principle. And so people have done studies of uh, subjects who made gratitude lists to see how effective it, they are in helping people to feel grateful, and the results have been somewhat mixed. And what more recent research suggests is that gratitude actually is a function of loss or impending loss. And so one researcher wondered, well, what if we were to try to ask, ask people not to think about what they were grateful for, but to think about how what they, are, what they have they might never have had or, or how what they have they may lose. And it turns out when people vividly imagine ways in which things that they currently have they might not have had, maybe you know, a near miss, for example, or things that they currently have that, the, you know, how they might lose them in a vivid way, that the, the power of the imagination seems to be uh, a great inducer of gratitude. So that if I can vividly imagine being without my wife or my son, for example, if I were to vividly imagine what it would be like to wake up in the morning and not have her lying beside me, as not to be able to call her in the middle of the day to tell her about some exciting news or to be able to uh, come home and have dinner with her or go to movies with her, if I really go through that exercise if you do that enough, it's quite astounding how emotionally powerful that is to, to the point where you can actually really feel like what it would be like to, to be without that person. And, and then recognizing you still have that person, feel tremendous gratitude for their continued presence in your life. It takes a lot of work. You actually have to sort of sit and do this. But I tell you, every morning I, I try to sit and I, I think about something in my life that I'm grateful for. And I do not just think about it. I think about how I might lose it. And in very realistic ways, because uh, it reminds me of the truth that there's a good chance I will lose it. You know, everything is impermanent. And the difference there is just when, I, when I'm awake to the fact that I am likely at one time to lose something that is valuable to me, it really instills a great sense of appreciation in, in that moment for that thing. And so I'm able to enjoy it more. And in, and in feeling more appreciation, it makes me a stronger person. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh my gosh. I, I I you know, my my heart chakra just opened up with a beam of light because you do hear a lot of talk about gratitude nowadays and being appreciative or having, you know, the gratefulness and sometimes that just it's just like going outside and breathing air. What the heck does that mean, right? And then the way you put it is so profound, listeners really, really grasp that. He says, Think about something that how it would be if you didn't have that. For example, how would it be if you had, you know, you couldn't breathe? Or how would it be if you didn't have that car? Or how would it be if you didn't have your spouse? Or, you know, when you think about something that you have and you kind of just take for granted because you have it, that if that wasn't there anymore, what what would you do? You know, like you said, what who would he share his information with? whether good, bad, or indifferent, if his wife wasn't there. You know, it's it's really, it, that's just so beautiful. It just taps down into the heart of 
really, really being able to really dig deep in your side of yourself and, and really appreciate those and the things that we take for granted and be really, truly grateful for having them in our lives. So I want to thank you um, for sharing that. And I know, like I said, you're a busy gentleman. So at this time, I would just like to have you share with us and the listeners as to how they could get that fabulous book that you've published, um, you know, the un the undefeated mind, as well as um, maybe, you know, connecting with you. How can people do that? So um, I have a website, which is www.alexlickerman.com, all one word, and my blog is on that site as well. And if anyone's interested in contacting me, they can do so through that. I love to get uh, emails from readers. And then the book, The Undefeated Mind, is um, available at Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, a local bookstore, uh, either electronically or in actual paperback format. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Again, you guys, if you want to uh, reach out and touch Dr. Alex Lickerman, you can check him out at www.alexlickerman.com. If you want to get the book, this fabulous book, The Undefeated Mind, you can go to Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com. You probably can go in the store and get it. There's an ebook um, format available for all of you guys that use Kindles, Nooks, and things of that nature. And I highly suggest you go and pick it up. It will help you. You know, even if you don't grasp it all at once and just carry it with you for a little while and read a little bit each day, watch how profoundly different you think about life and how much more resilience you're able to build just from the suggestions and things he talks about in the book. So thank you, Dr. Lickerman, for being here with us once again. Once again, you are absolutely stunning, sensational. And um, and thank you, listeners, for being with us and listening to Dr. Lickerman. I hope that you were able to grasp some information that you didn't know about before the show that now you do know and will help you to develop resilience and have that wonderful life, whether you have obstacles, challenges, or whatever they may be, um, but have that wonderful life that you all seek and desire. I'm Rochelle Lawson, the queen of feeling fabulous, and as always, I'm wishing you peace to your mind, wellness to your body, and tranquility to your spirit. Goodbye for now. You can find out more about Rochelle on her website, Rochelle Lawson, R-O-C-H-E-L-E, Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, or at healthhealingwellness.com. Or just click on her websites from the webtalkradio.net page right in front of you. And of course, you'll want to come right back here next week for another episode of Blissful Living. Thanks for joining us.